This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. Thank you so much. How many of you with me believe that Jesus Christ is the most exciting, fascinating, awesome person anyone could ever encounter? You know, the devil doesn't understand a simple, basic principle of the kingdom that must not go unnoticed by us. And it's in the kingdom, certain divine events, or for that matter, secular events, they have certain divine eventualities. So events lead to eventualities. The devil doesn't understand that. Because if he understood it, he would have never allowed Pharaoh to pursue Moses and the children of Israel into the Red Sea. He thought he had them in a cul-de-sac. God was about to part an ocean, give birth to a nation, and present a freeway. If the enemy understood that events have certain divine eventualities, he would have never allowed Goliath to come out and taunt the armies of the living God on a day that a teenage redhead freckle-faced boy was bringing lunch to his brothers. I believe that the enemy thought that by releasing a virus and bringing this global pause through the pandemic that none of us in our lifetime, we probably would have to go back to the bubonic plague to even understand the ramifications of what we've seen. But hear me, church, hear me good on this. The enemy, wherever it is that hell overplays its hand, heaven overlays its hand. I wish I could have said that better and got a shout from the back. Let me try that again. What you have to understand is God is not going to allow the enemy to outdo what he does. So here's where we arrive at. Let me tell you. It is often after great disruptions that great revivals take place. Many years ago, I'm not even going to date myself like that, but many years ago, I'm on a secular college campus and the enemy overplayed his hand. Me growing up, West Oakland, California, Northern California, growing up inner city, uh, grew up in a a situation, I I joke, but it's very serious, that my testimony is a three-part Maury Povich episode, means that there's a lot of drama, okay? And growing up in this place where I grew up, I was raised by a southern black grandmother who was an alcoholic. I didn't meet my dad till I was five. He was murdered tragically by policemen when I was nine years of age. Uh, I, I thank God for godly or even for that matter, moral law enforcement, the men and women in blue. But the particular officers that killed my dad were not. It was proven in court. It was racially motivated. My mom was doing the best she could to provide I ended up getting a scholarship because the San Jose Police Department had to give awards monies because of the unlawful death of my dad. I chose this university. But here is this thing of the enemy overplaying its hand and the Lord overlays its hand that the enemy would trigger an event not knowing that it will ultimately lead to a divine eventuality. He overplays his hand. Because I come back from a club one night, I'm going to kill myself the next morning. And I don't just mean I had a suicidal thought. I had it scripted out. I knew exactly how I was going to end this. But my southern black grandmother promised me before she went to be with Jesus, because she got delivered from alcoholism, 
at a little small Pentecostal holiness storefront church. She made her grandbaby promise her that he would call on the name of Jesus, which I did that night. I, I didn't know what was going to happen, so I need to lead with that. I did not know that God would answer that prayer. And here is what desperation does. Desperation puts a cry in your spirit that causes the heavens to open that releases encounter. So what I'm saying, and I'm going to wrap this part up, what I'm saying is, could it be, church, that we are closer to a North American revival, to a new Jesus people movement, to our babies, our grandbabies coming back to Christ, walking in their calling, cancer-free zones in Fort Lauderdale? Could it be that we're closer to where a record number of people, oh my God, my voice got excited. Could it be that we're closer to a record number of people giving their life to Jesus Christ? Jesus taking center stage and what looks out of control, we're going to find out who's really in control. I cried out. I didn't know this was going to happen. In the middle of the night, Jesus shows up in my college dorm room. When I say shows up, let me describe this because it would take Steven Spielberg and DreamWorks to attempt to do justice with special effects what Jesus painted on the canvas of my room. I didn't just feel the presence of God, though that's valid, that's awesome. You know, people will say that and they feel something lift off of them. They feel totally set free. I, all of that, but I saw Jesus like I see you. Jesus, people said, what did he look like? He, well, let me tell you what, he was the brightest light I've ever seen in my life. You know, anybody's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he looked like the human torch with glory on him. I saw a huge fire right in front of me. He spoke to me and said, I'll be a father to fatherless. Needless to say, that one encounter changes everything. See, the devil doesn't know. All it takes is one encounter. Right now, this service, and tonight at 6 o'clock, and for that matter, in this season, I believe that God is releasing an encounter. Do not underestimate one moment where Jesus shows up, shows off, rocks our world to where whatever it is we were before, we are that and even more. I want to pray, and I want you to agree with me right now. We've prayed for Afghanistan. We prayed for Haiti, and rightfully so. I now want to pray for you. Would you just do me a quick favor? Stand back up on your feet because you're going to be seated for a while. Let me pray for you. Father, there's a room full of people in which you died for, you shed your blood for. There are people here that you love dearly up in the balcony on the lower level. I pray that, God, you would allow the encounter realm to open up over your people. Lord, it is one thing to have a service. It's another thing to have an encounter. Lord, I trust CLC doesn't just have meetings. They have encounters. I pray, God, right now that the anointing of God would heal bodies. I pray that the power of the Holy Ghost would set captives free. I pray someone's spirit would open up with a fire that, Lord, to, to pursue you like they've never pursued before. Lord, we come against the enemy, the adversary, the resistor, Lord, the liar that has come against your people. And I pray, God, right now that, Father, it would be like those old Oprah makeovers or the, that uh, reality show ambush makeovers. There would be the I am bush makeover right now where we would encounter what Moses encountered. And I pray in the next conscious moment, at whatever point it is when we're walking out of this building, we would not be the same because Jesus, we met with you. So Father, 
once again punctuate, Lord, your power and deliver, Lord, the greatest release of harvest that this city has ever seen. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap and shout. I tell you what, there's blessed and there's spoiled. Okay, I'm going to brag on two things. First, let me brag on your worship right here. There is blessed. There are certain people that are blessed with a good worship team. There are other churches that are spoiled. Y'all are spoiled. This right here, oh my God, like seriously, I'm like, like where's my, my iTunes? I want to download your worship right now, okay? Like five minutes ago. That, that was just, how many of you felt the presence of God? I, I know you know this. Don't ever take for granted the level of worship, musicianship, anointed voices. I mean, let me tell you, it's good to have the anointing. Some folks have anointing, but, you know, maybe on the talent level, but it's cool because you got anointing. We're going to stick with you. Y'all got anointing and talent here, okay? So, man, oh my God. Pastors Tom and Candy, man, I'm telling you what, they have such a tremendous heart. You guys are being shepherded by generals, world-class generals, just via Zoom and then being able to meet in person and talk and just hear their heart. And just, we've got a lot of mutual friends. Thanks so much for having us, Pastor Tom, Pastors Candy, and it's an honor. My wife, Krista, I've outkicked my coverage, y'all, okay? Just going to be honest. Like, God bless me with this woman right here. She loves the Lord. You do not want to miss 6 o'clock. She wouldn't say this of herself. I'll say this of her. Uh, She is a prophetess, point-and-shoot prophetess, okay? So I'm telling you, tonight is going to be mighty, and so you do not want to miss tonight. And so let's jump in this. If you've got a Bible, go to uh, 2 Kings chapter 13, 2 Kings 13. uh, And as you go there... I'm just going to do a quick commercial break, and we're going to be out of it. I've written a book. I I didn't bring that many. My wife and I just came back from another conference, and they bought more than we thought they would bring uh, by. Excuse me. So I've wrote this book called I Am Your Sign. I Am Your Sign is a book about revival. Right after I got saved, I went to the small little Assembly of God church, and my pastor uh, handed me a book, and the book he handed me was Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. I don't know if you ever heard of Brother Lynn. I actually spent a weekend with him, revivalist. The book marked me. It wrecked me. It ruined me for the ordinary. When you read about what God has done, who God is, and the, and the prophetic challenge to respond with an open, surrendered, consecrated life, like I read in that book, you are ruined. By the time I got to a dead church, it was too late. That, that, like, you're the aberration. You're not the norm. How many of you know that? Like, if all you know is CLC, you're spoiled. If you ever happen to go to a dead church, you're like, my God, what are y'all doing here, right? You don't, you don't even want to afraid, shake the usher's hand afraid you might get embalmed or something, man. It's like, what are y'all doing up in here? But I read about revival. So to make a long story short, I wrote a book about revivals. I cover about probably 40 different revivals, outpourings, awakenings, and reformers, but I didn't just write this book about history. I wrote this book to those who will make history. I I believe in this, that you and I will see the greatest number of people that have ever given their life to the Lord are about to give their life to to the Lord. I believe, come on, I need a little more help. I believe we're going to see a billion soul harvest in the earth. 
I believe the lamb is worthy of the rewards of his sufferings. I don't think that the church is going to go hobbling out, just kind of hoping that we make it, afraid, running around and like, oh my God. No, 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 no. I think the devil is going to be afraid you got up this morning. That's what's going to be afraid. I believe, and you, you need to believe this with me, and I believe you do. You got to believe that God is powerful enough, strong enough, mighty enough, to bring the church out in greater power than when he started it. Come on, somebody. God is a better finisher than, if you will, he is a beginner, and he's perfect in all his ways. But what I'm saying is, whatever you saw in the book of Acts, greater glory has been scheduled for the church before Jesus returns. So we're going to see the greater than. And so we got that book out there, and then uh, we got a USB. It's got 24 hours of teaching. I call it the Prophetic Activation Series but I do an entire school on hearing the voice of God, establishing intimacy with the Holy Spirit, how do words of knowledge come, the gift of prophecy flow, a school of prophetic evangelism, uh, which is one of our books, but we sold out of it, and so much more. But it, it is a on a jump drive. It's an entire e-course on prophecy and being prophetic and not, not like the end times prophecy, but you flowing and becoming the mouthpiece of God. All right, so here we go. We're going to read at... 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. It said, Elijah had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Somebody say, "Uh uh-oh. Come on, say it again. Say, "Uh uh-oh. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you have destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elijah died and they buried him. And raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived. Say revived and stood on his feet. Revival is one of those things that the first thing that I want to begin is sometimes you have to talk about what something is not before you can talk about what it is. Revival is not just a series of meetings where we get excited and then eventually go back to normal. It's not a series of meetings per se that man can call, although it's nothing wrong in saying we're going to have some revival meetings. We're saying it by faith. But at the end of the day, the Lord is the sovereign one that decides revival. But here is the caveat. Here is the the, the point to understand. God is always willing to send revival. So he's not the variable and we're the constant, right? He's the constant, we're the variable. It's not like God has revival locked up in heaven's closet and go, if you fast enough to where your navel touches the back of your spine, then maybe, maybe I'll release revival. No, revival is like, if you will, a cargo plane in a holding pattern waiting for the the runway to open up. We fly out of San Francisco. My wife and I, we now live 
in still in the Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. Many times, the San Francisco runways, because of fog, that they won't allow certain planes to land. I guess they'll let certain planes take off in fog, but they won't let you land until the fog clears. And so planes are in a holding pattern. And one time I was in one of these holding patterns, and I felt like the Lord says, this is revival over the, the nation of, of North America, the United States. That it's in a holding pattern waiting for the fog of our hearts to clear so that God can drop the landing plane of a blessing. If you think that you've met God in a service, right? And it was a special service. You came to an altar. There was a special conference. You went to a special uh, series of meetings and you met God and it was like an atmosphere of revival. Whatever that is, multiply that times a thousand to the point where it can't even be contained in a building. It's down there at Starbucks. Come on, somebody. It's at your mall. It's at your kid's public high school. And all of a sudden, people are wrecked by God all over. People are getting healed. Crime stops. When I'm talking about revival, I'm not talking about a little bit of a meeting where you kind of get on fire, where you go back to normal. Two things wrong with that. If you have a series of meetings and you get excited or on fire, but you go back to normal, it is a revival because when revival comes, it brings a new normal. You can't go back to the old normal. You have to go on from there. So it begs the point. Everybody smile with me. There are too many people that I think that in their mind, they want to get back to normal. Now, if normal is we are not threatened by a virus, we don't wear masks, we don't have to worry about six feet social distancing or spikes or vaccinations or any of those kind of things, awesome. I would like to get back to that. But I think in our minds, follow me, we're trying to get back to an old church normal that God, in fact, brought something new so we would never go back to what it was. We're going trying to get back to that normal thinking it was all that. It wasn't all that. And when God comes, he shows us what normal ought to look like. God has given the church a new wineskin. He's given us a new heart and passion to go after God, to say, hey, I can't just kind of like, like ride the Christian love boat of this Christian walk and walk up in church and stand up and put a buck in a plate and sit back down and walk out and not be changed. Come on. I know y'all not doing that, but there are churches all over America. That's how church is done. Now, let me sit down and say this. If what you call revival is you get on fire for a while, but you go back to normal, that's not revival. That's a hot flash. Come on, somebody, because you lost your fire. You got on fire for a moment, but you went back to whatever it was you were before. No, no, no. When revival comes, you carry the flame. It's not like your the little song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. No, no, no. When you're in revival, you don't have a little light. You don't have a little big lighter. You got a blowtorch. Come on, somebody. And people around you get on fire. Oh, I believe that in revival, God tips a heavenly scale in favor of his purposes. And whatever it is that God is doing in a group, in a people, in a nation, that it begins to accelerate. And Jesus receives the greatest glory when the church looks most like him. And when we look like him and act like him, the world around us begins to respond in a way that it hasn't responded before. Maybe, let me say this, maybe some of the hardness of America is the fact that we have runaway revivalists in the church. I, I'm going to amen myself because I know I, y'all, y'all don't want to, come on, y'all, preach that thing. Let, let me tell you what, Jonah, right, was on a boat. Storm came on that boat, shaking it. Was the storm that hit Jonah on a boat 
was it because he had these idolatrous men, beer guzzling sailors on board? No, it was because Jonah was running away from the revival he was supposed to call into existence. And he even said it. He said, man, you throw me off the boat, the storm will, will stop. Maybe the storm in America isn't because of the, all the other groups. Maybe the storm in America is that we got some runaway revivalists going in the wrong direction. But 2020, come on, turned us around somebody and it's starting to get us to move in the right direction. Woo, all right. I believe we're in a moment where God has this divine inspiration that's ready to pull on you. And in this divine inspiration, he's pulling something out of your life. Let me describe this. 2 Kings chapter 13, something about a crisis. How many of you know a little something about a crisis? That's kind of a joke. Yes, yeah, somebody, oh yeah, right? We know a lot about crisis. We could like write a book right now about crisis, right? We not only had the health pandemic crisis, we had a cultural civil unrest crisis. We had a political crisis. We have the nations of the world crisis. Like where isn't there crisis going on right now? 2 Kings chapter 13, there's a king by the name of Joash. King Joash is facing a crisis of national proportion. As he's facing this crisis, there's a group of people, the Syrians, and, they, and scholars would also say the Arameans, that they have come, and as these scholars would say, they have threatened the entire security of a nation. And in the midst of it, you could kind of see the writings kind of on the wall that this is going to lead ultimately to the collapse, possibly, of a nation. And so this king... And he wasn't the most godly king. He was rather at times a kind of a compromised king, but he at least understood this. In my crisis, I got to get to God. So this king, Joash, come on, let's give him some credit on that. There's some folks, they don't know in a crisis, you need to get to God. Come on, you need to put down the pipe. Come on, you need to put down the drink. Come on, you need to quit running around all the clubbing and partying. That's not going to answer the deepest cry of your heart. You were created to connect with the God that loves your soul, that, that for you to understand your purpose and your destiny is greater than getting high and trying to escape and trying to do it. Maybe even a Netflix binge, whatever. Come on, God's got something greater for you than that. Ooh, come on, I'm going to preach to this group right here because I got some amens. So the king, here's where I'm giving him credit, he goes to the man of God. The man of God is the prophet Elisha. And so King Joash, as his entire national security is threatened, a nation's in crisis, he comes to the man of God and he says, oh my father, my father. He says, the nation of Israel and their horsemen. In other words, our nation is threatened to fall into shambles. The horseman represents the security, our national security, it, it is awry. I need help. And so now here it comes. Now here's the good thing about crisis. The good thing about crisis is it causes you to find out where Christ is. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I didn't say that right. The speakers went out. It just didn't go over. Come on, somebody got that online. The good thing about crisis is you begin to discover where Christ is because Christ is in the middle of your crisis. All right. So here's the man of God. And he says, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to open the east window and shoot. Now, you got to understand, shoot. He didn't have a pistol. He didn't have a Glock. The dude had bow and arrows. So he opens up the window and shoots the arrow. Now, here's the significance of that. Today, when a country or nation declares war, they sign a declaration of war. But the scholars tell us in those days that you would shoot an arrow in the direction of your enemy. So the east 
east of where he was was where the Syrians were at. So he shot an arrow, watch this, to declare war. Can I stop and talk to us about that just for a moment? Our cities ought to be filled with arrows. Because we've declared war. We don't want the devil taking our kids out on crack, crystal meth. We don't want them taking them out, confusing them about their gender and their sexuality and who God created them to be. That we're not going to sit back and let the devil literally try to rob the consciousness of Christ off the collective walls of a generation. There ought to be the arrows of intercession. There ought to be the arrows and I'm going to say something. I'm not going to sit back and let the devil do all the talking. I'm about to declare and decree. Come on, somebody. Hey, there ought to be some arrows at your workplace. Ought to be some arrows because we are declaring war on what the enemy is doing. We're not going to take this sitting down. Come on, somebody. The enemy picked the fight with the wrong group. I'm not a victim of the end times. Come on. The end times is a victim to the body of Christ because end times aren't happening to us. We're, we, us, are happening to the end times. That's what it's about. People talk about these end time teachers and all they do is talk about the Antichrist. The end times ain't about the Antichrist. The end times is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's put this thing in perspective. I'm aware of the enemy, but I'm impressed with my God. Oh, come on. Hey. There ought to be some arrows. We ought to reach for our bow and arrow. We shouldn't be reaching for the other stuff that becomes substitutes in our crisis to try to get us to escape. The first thing the man of God said, here is my prescription to deal with the crisis. Get your bow and arrow and start shooting. Somebody need to start shooting right now. He opens the window, he lets out a shot. And he says, good, that's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. So he's telling him, this is important, the posture of declaring war, the posture that I'm not going to let fear write my narrative. I'm not going to let the enemy finish the rest of my story. I'm going to war. It's time to fight, saints. It's time to fight. Come on, somebody. It's time to get, like, like <laughs> get your boxing gloves on. The Bible doesn't say we, we wrestle against flesh and blood or we wrestle against powers and principalities. Excuse me. It doesn't say that we box against powers and principalities. It says we wrestle. Let me, I got that wrong. I'm going to say it one more time to make sure it's established. It doesn't say that we box because box implies you can stick and move and dance around and kind of, you ever seen a boxing matches where you kind of want to see more punches? Y'all just dancing. But wrestling is constant physical grappling and you're constantly trying to find an advantage. The Bible says that we wrestle and you got to understand that you're in the middle of a battle. Whether you like it or not, whether you sign up for it or not, whether you, you kind of feel like, I need a break or not, the enemy does not feel sorry for us. The enemy's not going to say, man, you know, they're having a bad day. Let me go easy on them this week. No, no, no. The only thing the devil understands is greater force. The Bible says a strong man guards his goods until one who is greater than him comes and takes away the armor and, and collects the spoils. He only understands greater force. So we got to be ones that know how to tap into that. So now the guy gets his bow and arrow, shoots it. Now let me do the second thing I'm going to give him credit for. At least he knew where his bow and arrows are at. Some folks, they don't know where their weaponry at. You know what I'm saying? Like, baby, what happened to my Bible? I don't even know where my Bible's at. I think I put it over here someplace. Like, like you, you don't even know where your Bible's at. You, you, he, he at least had his bow and arrows there. You got to understand, what is your weaponry? It's not going off on somebody on Facebook. That's not your weaponry. 
losing your witness. Come on, you don't even have the disposition of the Father no more. I know I may not be talking to everybody, but I might be talking to somebody. Come on, somebody. That's not your weaponry to get in a verbal attack over somebody. No, we are not fighting against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual attack, baby. And you're not going to have my marriage. You're not going to have my mama. Come on, you're not going to have my kids. Cancer is not going to be the reigning dominant force that it was in my mama's mama and my mama and it looked like I got it too. No, devil is a liar. We're going to fight this day. We're going to fight. Revival is about learning the tension between resting in God and knowing that he's given us victory, but also taking the posture of shooting our arrows and fighting and contending for the more rather than settling for the less. Come on, somebody say, fight for the more. Don't settle for the less. Now the man of God says, I want you to empty your quiver. I want you to shoot everything you got. And so here's the king, okay? Now imagine if we could close in or maybe we go to heaven and watch heaven's YouTube replay of this. I'd love to see this. King has shot one arrow, so he's declared war on the enemy. That's good. You've adopted the right posture, that you're not going to take a posture of being on the defense. You're now going to go to the offense. So he now says, shoot. The guy has a full quiver, would have been, let's say at that time, seven arrows. So he shot one. So depending on if he just had an extra bow around or not, he probably had five or six arrows left. So the king, Joash, who's shaky to begin with, shoots one arrow, shoots two arrows, shoots three arrows, and we said the uh uh-oh, he stops. Like, time out, okay? Hold the phone, commercial break, fade to black. Like, the prophet just told you to shoot your arrows, empty your arrows, right? I mean, if this dude is really threatening your nation, are you just going to go halfway? If this thing is threatening your family, are you just going to go the mediocre road? If this thing involves the destiny of what God's got for you and how you can glorify God in the ultimate way in your generation, you got one life to do this. You're going to do this just kind of half, half mass, kind of just kind of going on and not really going all the way. No, this guy shot one arrow, two arrows, stop, and kind of felt like, hey, man, I kind of did this. This is kind of cool. Now, wait, why would you stop? Why would you stop? Like, The Bible says that the prophet was angry at him. Let me say this, and then I want to stop and share a story. It wasn't that he was angry at him in that what he was doing was evil. Follow me. He wasn't mad or angry at him because what he was doing was evil. In fact, what he was doing was good. He just didn't do it enough. He stopped. Let me say that again. Shooting arrows was what he was commanded to do, but he didn't follow through with it. He shot one arrow. He shot two arrows. It's not like this dude is over there doing something illicit or something evil. He's doing something good, but he stopped in a time where there was crisis. The enemy banks on the church going into pause in a time of crisis. But we need to be some six shooting arrow Christians we need to be some empty to quiver Christians. It's the time to empty it, right? I'd have been shooting all the arrows. I'd have found somebody else arrows. I'd have went Looney Tunes and grabbed the kitchen sink and threw it out the window. Man, anything that can go out the window towards the enemy in a declaration and an attack needs to happen. Why did he stop? Let me give you a thought, but let me back up a little bit. 
I was raised by a southern black grandmother. My grandma's from Dumas, Arkansas. I don't know anybody who knows where Dumas, Arkansas is. She's from the deep south, y'all. She's on the other side of the sticks. She had to go north just to get to the sticks, okay? My grandmother, she was raised out there. She was raised a certain way. My mom and dad met at a nightclub. They never got married. My mom got pregnant. My mom didn't know the Lord. She chose to have the child, although it was recommended to her to abort the child. Praise God she did. I think you'd agree with me because if she did, I wouldn't be here, right? She sent for her mother, my grandmother. My grandmother raised me as my mom worked a couple, three different jobs just to make ends meet. And we grew up in a tenement section. We grew up, <coughs> grew up po, P-O, po, okay? <laughs> Couldn't afford to buy the vial on Wheel of Fortune from Vanna. We didn't have $250. <laughs> Pat Jack doesn't accept food stamps. All right. And so here's my grandmother. She's an alcoholic. She was functional. She would take care of me, but she would drink. She'd pass out. I'd come home from school, help my grandmother to, to the bed. Whatever I need to do, help clean her up. That was kind of my life. There was a heaviness. If you've grown up with an alcoholic, you, you, there was a heaviness in the atmosphere. There was a real battle of depression for me that I know my grandmother. When I was in high school, my, my grandma got saved. She gave her life to Jesus Christ, got delivered, and that connects you back to my story. She tells me, baby, you need to call on Jesus. When I was growing up, my grandmother brought the Dumas, Arkansas ways with her. So I grew up in this neighborhood. Nobody in our neighborhood was affluent. Uh, to say the least. We, we were all on the lower uh, economic rung on the ladder. So my grandma had to teach me something. She said, baby, I had a good friend named Ray, Ray Jones, called him Ray Ray. She said, you're going to go over to Miss Jones' house, Ray's house. Miss Jones is going to ask you if you want something to eat. Baby, you need to say no. Come on, somebody, somebody finished the statement when she knew that. She said, she's going to ask you twice. You need to say no, ma'am, no again. My, my grandma taught me to say no, ma'am, yes, sir. When older folks came in the room, I stood up on my feet. My grandma taught me those, that kind of way. That's just how it was, right? I'm not saying my life was right, but I listened to my grandmother because she could throw a calcified biscuit, hit me in the head, put me in the hospital. Better listen to my grandmother, right? She'd get a belt. You know, today, parents have time out, you know, to make the kids do time out. Now, I'm not telling you how to parent, but the ministry of time out was not in my upbringing, Okay. The closest thing I had to a timeout is my grandma would whip me, right, with, with the switch with the right hand, and she'd get tired, and she was ambidextrous. She would switch the switch to the left hand between the right hand and the left hand. That was my timeout. Okay, just saying, just saying. That was my timeout. So this started from this to this, that little space, timeout. She said, Miss Jones is going to ask you a third time, do you want something to eat? And you need to say no a third time, but you can... Say, I'll eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'll eat Spam. I don't know if y'all know nothing about no Spam. Come on. I know, I know the millennials, they think it's just unwanted junk mail. Somebody ate some pink meat and gelatin. I'm not sure what animal it came from. Come on, just wave at me if you ever had some Spam. Come on, Spam. Shout out to Spam, right? So what was my grandmother telling me in all seriousness? She was saying, if you eat something on the main menu, that means... Mr. Jones, who would come, t come around sometimes, he, he wouldn't always be there. Ray Ray had multiple brothers and sisters. If you ate something off the stove, that meant someone's portions were going to be reduced. Anybody nod their head if you, if you know anything about that? So you could ask for something off the menu. Usually peanut butter and jelly sandwich wasn't somebody dinner, spam, sardines and crackers. I mean, that's just the kind of stuff we was eating, right? And so I got in the habit of doing that. Now, follow me. I'm going to use a term, and I want you to stick with me. I believe that what causes the body of Christ to only shoot three arrows is a poverty spirit. Now, let me explain something about a poverty spirit, okay? And here's what I mean. Now, 
When I say a poverty spirit, when a crisis comes, you can't have a poverty spirit. Now, hear me on this. I'm not, even, I'm not talking finances. So if you think I'm going that direction, I'm not. We're not taking an offering. I, the poverty spirit has something to do with finances, but it has everything to do with what you're willing to settle for and what you don't believe is available for you, what you believe that would happen for them, that would happen for her, that would happen for that brother over there. But God wouldn't do that for me. He would use them like that. He would use pastor like that. Come on. He would use a worship leader like that, but I don't know if he would show up and do that for me. That is a poverty mentality. When you don't think that you're worth because understand, Jesus' blood made you worthy. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High God. Let the devil say what he says. God has already established who you are and whose you are. So my Calvary Campus pastor, he took me, God by the name of Donnie Moore, he took me uh, to Texas with him, got on a plane, and it was a, a nice church in Texas. Uh, one of the elders picked us up. I think it was the elder in the church. Uh, the guy had money. And I didn't realize how many, like in the, in the hood, you see some people got a little bit of money and they think they rich, but they're not rich. They got like little gaudy jewelry on. No, no, I'm not talking about rich. I'm talking about wealthy. Come on. How many of you know the difference between rich and wealthy? Wealthy is quiet money. You don't even know. There's a one or 1.3 billion and he got a hole in his jean and an old cowboy hat and some old boots. You don't even know, right? And so this guy picked this up. He pulls up and, and the, the pastor, rather than have a stay at a hotel, we're going to stay uh, with this elder in the church, he pulls up to a mansion. His mansion was bigger than my apartment complex. Somebody said, big! He goes into his mansion, gets some keys, drives past his mansion, and he has another mansion behind his original mansion. You know you're wealthy when you're, you got a mini-me mansion behind your mansion, all right? And that's where we were going to stay. So I, I'm like big-eyed. I just gave my life to the Lord. I'm straight out of Oakland. And, man, I'm in the biggest place I've ever stayed in my life. We opened it up. It even smelled good. I mean, it was just everything. They had, like, Mr. Spraying Cologne or something in the middle of it. And he has a three-door refrigerator. All I had was an ice box. If you have to dethaw your freezer to close the door in your refrigerator, you have an ice box. We had an ice box. We had no refrigerator. He had three doors on it. And he said, are you boys hungry? And boom, I went back. I went back to little kid Sean. I go, no. Now, if you're a college student, or let me rephrase that. If you have a college student, you don't need to ask them, are they hungry? They're always hungry. Just start feeding them. They don't eat, okay? And he asked me a second time. And right at this time, my campus pastor, he had to go use the restroom. So it's just me and this, this elder at this church, of a wealthy man. He says, are you hungry? I said, no. He said, are you hungry? I went, no. I mean, I went back. My, my grandma Ethel Lee, she's talking to me right now. No. He asked me a third time. He says, come on, man. You got to be hungry. And it's true, true story. No exaggeration. I said, well, well, if you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The man, like, took off his cowboy hat, scratched his head, looked at me crazy. He walks over, like, in our place, we had a little place, a cupboard, where you would have, like, little kind of dry foods, canned foods, right? This dude open up a door. It was Sam's Club. It was Costco. People handing you out freebie hors d'oeuvres, man. He goes in the back. I mean, it was an entire room of stuff. He goes all the way to the back to grab a peanut butter and jelly jar so neglected it needed therapy. Nobody ever seen this thing. It had never been used. He pulls it off, opens up the three-door refrigerator, pushes 
the filet mignon, the prime rib, the pheasant under glass, the Texas barbecue, the potato salad, all a specialty. He had a chef come in and cook. I didn't know that. He, got, he pushes it all aside, and there's a jelly jar stuck to the shelf. You know what I'm saying? Like five years ago, his kids used it, and his little bit of jelly made it. He had to wrestle to get it off, handed me two pieces of bread, and all of a sudden, my campus pastor comes out and says, hey, man, can I have some of that prime rib and some of that filet mignon, and I'll take some of that potato salad, and I'm sitting there with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. The Lord spoke to me and said, when you have a poverty spirit, you have believers that will settle for spiritual peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when the filet mignon of the spirit is being served. What was my error? My error was this. If you, first of all, you have to find out what's on the menu. If you don't know what's on the menu, you settle for stuff. If you don't know what the Bible says that God would do for his people, if you don't know previous moves of God, you don't know in history how God has moved in revivals and the people we thought unsavable could get saved. Come on, somebody. God is able. Somebody say, God is able. He can heal diseases. God isn't. Now, I know we are, so this is not a dig on us. But God isn't on the throne with an N95 mask on, keeping Angel Gabriel and Angel Michael six feet social distance. I know we need to, but we need to understand our God has a solution. Our God sees the end from the beginning. He is not afraid, and neither should we be. We may take precautions. We may need to be wise. There may need to be health. There are health risks involved, but we cannot allow fear to dictate to us to all of a sudden we settle for the spiritual peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, I wish I'd get somebody to help me preach this thing. Just tell somebody, say, I'm about to get my prime rib. Excuse me, pardon me. I'm about to get me. Come on. I should have found out what's on the menu. You know, when revival hits, what God does is he makes our comfort zones not seem so comfortable. Maybe emptying the quiver was uncomfortable. Maybe believing for the more when you could settle for spam or peanut butter and jelly. Maybe that's uncomfortable for you. But in times of revival, God makes our comfort zone uncomfortable. Why? It's only when the church gets uncomfortable can the world experience what's possible. They'll never experience what's possible if we're not willing to get uncomfortable. Are you with me? All right, let me give you some thoughts on this thing of a poverty spirit because I believe it's so important. Number one, poverty spirit is established for the purpose of keeping us from walking in fullness. I believe that King Joash, whether he recognized it or not, his fear, his utter shock of the crisis had kicked him into a poverty spirit. He's on conservation. He's thinking limited rations. He's fighting for, come on, toilet paper and baby wipes at the airport because they're at the, air, the airport, at the grocery store because they're sold out. But the enemy uses a poverty spirit to keep us from walking in fullness. What does it do? Watch this. A poverty spirit attaches itself to people and creates a false perception that God is not there for you. He's not moving like this. That all of a sudden you got to do what you got to do. You just got to make it and you go into survival mode. That's shooting three arrows as opposed to revival mode. God didn't want the church in survival. He wants the church in revival. God didn't send coronavirus, but I believe he got the world's attention. He's made 
them desperate and the church hungry. And whenever a nation has gotten desperate and the church has gotten hungry, when those two things combine, revival is on the horizon. Come on, I wish I could really get somebody to believe when I'm preaching. The second thing about a poverty spirit is developed by years of sitting in lack. And here's my thing. If you've never, you, you are, you're special. You're, you're the unicorn, CLC. You've seen moves of God. You've had tremendous speakers here. You have a pastor, pastors that are going for revival. There are many churches that they don't understand that. All they understand is a 23-minute sermonette that creates 23-minute babyettes. You know what I'm saying? Like, the problem with 23-minute Christians is it creates, excuse me, 23-minute sermons is it creates 23-minute Christians. That's the problem. They don't know. They don't know where the power of God would come, and somebody couldn't even wait till the altar call is given, and they got to get up and come kneel at the altar and, and empty their pockets of all their drug paraphernalia. They haven't seen, like I saw as a young Christian of a man of God, a guy who was a mentor of mine, point, and a woman gets up out of a wheelchair, hadn't walked for eight years, and the power of God not only heals her to stand, but her atrophy muscles, because you can see her legs, that she begins to walk, and then all of a sudden she takes off, she starts running. This was my introduction to Christianity. But a poverty spirit wants to rob a generation to all they get is man-made leftovers. They don't know a, 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 a service that is more of a reflection of God's nature than man's nature. And we have to contend. We need a generation. We need the upcoming generation to have some mamas and daddies and grandmamas and grandpapas. Come on, somebody. That they are emptying the quiver for a full move of God. That a generation can see what does fullness look like. Because we have a generation that either won't come to church or are leaving the church because all they've seen was three shooting Christianity. But we need some empty to quiver believism. Come on. We need some folks with a spirit of abandonment on them. We need some folks that's going to go all the way. We need some folks that say, God, you saved me. Hey, you didn't do anything else in my life. You saved me. The worst thing the devil could ever do to you is kill you. But if he could kill you, which I believe he can't, Hebrews 9.27 says, is appointed unto man to die once after that comes a judgment. If you're a child of God, God is the only one that can take you home. The devil can't take you home. He can't take you out till God's ready to take you home. So let me just say, if the devil, the worst thing the devil could do is kill you, but guess what? You wake up in the eternal arms of a loving father. You go to heaven. You need to let the devil know you can't threaten me with heaven. Come on, you can't threaten me with heaven. Hell is not in my future. Hey, if I went out on the road, heaven forbid, car hits me and I go, that's not judgment. Judgment passed over my life 35 years ago when I gave my life to Christ. Come on, there's no judgment on me. Because of the blood of the lamb. When we create a belief system around a delay, come on, coronavirus. When we create a belief system around, how many of you know this thing lasted longer than we thought? Remember last year when it broke out? I'm only going to go about, about 10 minutes. Just stick with me. Remember last year when it all broke out? I don't know if you remember March 17th. We all pff, locked down two weeks. I thought two weeks later we out. We wasn't out. And I thought, okay, Pentecost Sunday. I heard some words. We're going to be out Pentecost. Psh, Pentecost Sunday. We're still in. Then somebody said, hey, the coronavirus can't survive the warm winter, or excuse me, warm summer months. How many of you know coronavirus put on some hundred, whatever percent, suntan lotion or something, sun, sunscreen. It survived. Come on. Then somebody said, hey, man, 2021, we're going to be good. And then 2021, and then now the Delta variant, and then all this other. How many of you know? When you create a, a belief system around a lack or delay of a promise, you feed into a poverty spirit. You guys still with me? And what does a poverty spirit do? Its biggest function is to create a sense of apathy, 
passivity, complacency, a lack of spiritual drive. You become in ruts. It's to keep you out of your inheritance. You don't have that passion. You're not really going after God. And this is proof in a guy that shot three arrows. Now, why did he do it? And I want to give me about right now five minutes and we're done. I believe that there are three things he should have considered that would have caused this man to at that third point when he stopped, like, oh, no, uh uh-uh. And he would have reached down and emptied the rest. Let me give you these three points. And this is so important uh, that I do not want you to miss this. The first thing that I think he did not consider, and I think he should have considered, is the window. Somebody say window. When the prophet said to the king, open the east window and shoot, what he didn't understand is, and Leonard Ravenhill said this, this great man of God. He says, listen to this, catch this. He says, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. A window means just exactly that. It's only open so long. You ever play that putt-putt miniature golf? You ever get, I know in California they do this, and you get to the ninth hole. It's usually one of those things. It's like a ladder underneath like a bridge on a house. And if you can get the ball to go in while it's up before it closes, but it opens and closes so quick, you have to have the perfect shot, do it at the right time. And if you do it when it's open, you can win a, a free round of golf at the miniature golf place. Many times opportunities, and I believe America I believe we're at an opportunity. I believe right now, excuse me, I'm not trying to put anyone in any false kind of motivation under this, but I believe if we as a church don't act now, I don't want to know what America looks like in five years. I don't want to know what a generation that will be. They predict less than 1% of them will believe the God, believe the Bible to be true, and be church-going folks. I don't want to see a nation where less than 1% of the people are like you and me. We have a window right now. I don't think this dude recognizes his window because marauding bands are going to hit your spot in, in the later part of the year and they're going to start decimating. And because you can live with partial victory, what it's really saying is you're going to experience partial defeat. He didn't recognize you. We got a window, folks. You got a window. Maybe it's because of your age right now. You got a window. Maybe it's your youth right now. Maybe it's the, 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 the gray hairs on your head cry the fact that there's an aged wisdom that needs to be released. We need you to mentor someone. We need your prayers. Maybe you're not as active right now, but we need you. Come on. I'm, I always tell people, hey, at a certain point, if I'm not able to, I'm going to be on a rocking chair praying for revival. I'm going to be praying for my grandbabies. Come on, my great-grandbabies. I'm going to be praying for my nation. You're not taking me out. You know, in the world, you retire to give you a watch, forget you in a week. Come on, somebody. You don't retire till Jesus takes you home. Up into that is all hands on deck from the captain to the cook. We need you. Second W is he didn't understand his weaponry. He didn't understand because if he had understood, he'd have shot everything he had. See, you know what the devil does? The devil, here, here's King Joash, right? The devil worked to disconnect. That Joash couldn't make the connection that what he was doing from his bedroom chambers had everything to do with what would influence a nation. He just think, I'm just shooting arrows out a window. I don't see nobody falling. I don't see the enemy going, ouch. Like, is this even doing any good? The devil wants to cause a disconnect to get you to not see the connection between your prayers, your life of unseen faithfulness, your purity, your integrity, the fact that you keep your love on and you don't take the bait of getting offended at folks. The enemy wants to cause a disconnect for you not to see the connection between the what you're doing in secret and how that can influence literally an atmosphere over a region. 
and third and final of all, he didn't understand the window, he didn't understand the weaponry, he didn't understand the wave. Oh, this is my favorite part. Come on, I might need three more minutes. How many of you give me three minutes? I just, three, six, nine, twelve. All right, I got, no, no. Elisha, the prophet, would die. But then it would say what happened. We don't know the amount of time that passed, but Elijah is buried, and they would have these open sepulchers. All of a sudden, at this particular time, we read this passage, by the way. We continue to read it. The nation of Israel is in a battle. Well, actually, before the battle, let's back it up. They're in a funeral. <laughs> they, they had a dude die. Bob. We're just calling him Bob. They're having a funeral. Bob, man, we love Bob. Bob's such a good guy. Oh, man, I'm going to miss Bob. And so they're, they're mourning Bob. And all of a sudden, as they're having a funeral procession, the enemies jump out. When the enemies jump out, you got to go from funeral mode to fight mode. Come on, somebody. You got to get out of mourning. Come on and get into fighting sometimes. Come on. How many believers, you ever had to do that? Come on. Anybody ever had to, you had to dry them tears and, okay, I'm about to fight now. Okay, it's on, right? So they had Bob. Again, I'm, I'm fictitious. I'm making up his name. It's probably not. They throw him in this open hole thinking, okay, Bob, you'll be cool. I mean, you're dead, so you're all right, but we're going to leave you here. We'll come back and get you, but we got to fight. They didn't know that Elisha's bones was in that hole. When they threw dead Bob on Elijah's bones, the Bible says Elijah revived. I'm excuse me, Bob revived. And can you imagine, they, they're getting ready to fight. They go, okay, y'all ready? Y'all ready? Wipe your tears off. Come on, we got to fight. Come on. They're getting ready to say charge. And all of a sudden, Bob runs right through the middle of them. Charge! How many of you know they won that battle that day? Come on, when you come back from the dead, when you revived, devil can't kill you. But here is my vote for the baddest man in the Old Testament. Some would say Samson. You can kill the ISIS of your day with a jawbone of a donkey, you bad. I mean bad as in not morally bad, but lethal bad. But my vote for the baddest man in the Old Testament is Elijah. Because when you can raise the dead after you dead, you bad. Okay, and we just going to say you bad. <laughs> but what does it prove? And I am closing. It proves the third W. I said you got to understand the window. You got to understand the weaponry. You got to understand the wave. The wave is... There have been people that have contended for revival before you. Their prayers, although they've gone to be with the Lord, their prayers of your grandmamas, come on somebody, your granddaddies. Prophetic words over this region of southern Florida. Revivals, I, I was just saying this as we were here uh, very recent. In modern church movements, there's not a state in America that has had as many revivals as you have had in our lifetime. There was a great man of God, still is my understanding, uh, David Youngie Cho pointed to a map, and the map was the state of Florida, and he said the revival that will sweep this nation will come right out of this state. Claudio Frazon came over and was in a meeting Literally, I believe it was in Lakeland, Florida, and got ignited and went back and carried revival. There are dead man's bones here. Can you understand that? They had to hit their crisis to get revived, and revival always comes out of crisis if we'll, act, we'll play, our, play the situation right. Final thing, right? When Elijah, now we're going to back up. Elijah's dead, but his bones brought revival. Now rewind this tape. <laughs> When the Bible says that Elijah told King Joash to shoot his arrows, the Bible says he put his hand on Elijah. Can I say something to you? Understand the wave. 
You could be in the room with revival and not even know it. King Joash didn't know who was in the room with him. That was a revival. This dude had so much revival on him that once he was dead, there was still enough residue of revival on his bones to bring a dude back to life. He didn't know. Sometimes I think we don't even know we're in the room with the great reviver himself, Jesus. But let me take it a step further, right? He wasn't just in the room with revival. Revival reached out for him. Right now, revival is reaching out for you. The Bible says Elijah put his hands. Revival is reaching out for you right now. What's going to be your response? You see, shooting quivers, excuse me, shooting arrows out of the quiver, it wasn't a test, uh, or it wasn't a quiz of compliance. Like, okay, you need to shoot X amount of arrows, and if you shoot X amount of arrows, you'll pass this quiz. No, no, it wasn't a quiz of compliance. It was a test of the chest. How bad do you want this thing? Are you going to empty the quiver? If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.